about 158,000 learners in seven provinces did not return to public schools this year. Mutsekha has advised that these states be treated with caution because some might have enrolled in private schools and TVET colleges. Grade 7, 10 and 11 recorded the highest numbers of non-returnees. The issue of education is perhaps a little closer to home for most of us because all of us have an experience of going to school. And no doubt many of you listening to this have children of school going age at the moment and perhaps still get the sweats when you think back to 2020 and having to homeschool your child while being in Zoom meetings 24-7. What concerns you about their schooling? And what concerns you about the realities of the greater public education system in South Africa? Welcome to this episode. I am Dombini Marangani, Senior Manager at the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. In this episode, we'll be unpacking public education and why this is one of South Africa's most pressing issues. We also hope to delve into the role that corporate South Africa can play in changing the narrative, both of the system at large and the individual lives of the many young people who really need us to do right by them. When it comes to education, the playing fields have never been equal. Some children go to school well-fed and some get their only meal of the day through a feeding scheme at school. Some sit in classrooms with teachers who are dedicated and well-prepared whilst many sit in classrooms in broken down buildings, waiting day after day for their teachers to show up. It seems ludicrous to me that we're expecting the same outcomes from these two scenarios. A Stats SA household survey conducted in 2021 showed that 3% of 15-year-olds and 9% of 17-year-olds dropped out of school. The reasons ranged from illness and disability to an inability to afford school fees to having no interest in education. Children are naturally curious, and I'd put money on the fact that most of these children started school excited and ready to learn. I'm really excited for, the, for my school, because I'm going to grade one, and I'm, make, I, I'm making new friends, with my, and I can see some of my old friends. But years of being in a failing system would cause even the most eager to give up. The numbers I just mentioned are worrying. These young people will soon be adults, and what opportunities can they possibly have with such a poor education? What exactly are the issues and what can we do about them? It's clear that an innovative approach is needed, but how and what role could investment banking play in creating a new narrative? Joining me now to discuss this further is public education expert, Dr. James Keevey. James started out in the classroom as a teacher and after working as the Director for International Liaison at the South African Qualifications Authority, was appointed as CEO at JET Education in 2014. For over 30 years, JET has worked with multiple stakeholders to improve the quality of education in South Africa, as well as the relationship between education, skills development, and the world of work. Hello, James. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you this morning? I'm good, thanks, Antobini. Uh, good to be with you. From your perspective, what are the critical issues facing the education sector in South Africa today? So this is a big question, eh? and it's a question we've had in our country for the last uh, many, many years. You know, even during the apartheid period, there were many issues. But the key issues that I think, if I can answer you kind of briefly in terms of what we're facing at the moment, is um, 
quality, quality of our schooling is not improving sufficiently, uh, despite the investment. You know, our investment per, per child is quite high compared to many other countries, including countries that are being quite successful, including African countries. You know, we're investing much more, but our return on investment is much lower. Add to that is the, you know, the, the, the political and, and uh, operational leadership in our system really needs a refresh. You know, we, we've come a long way with, with the current uh, regime, the, the current processes we've tried to implement. Many of them are not working. And are we really just going to keep doing the same thing, hitting our head against the wall and think that the results are going to change? They're not. So I think there are massive things that we need to do in our system and massive problems. One of the key things is let's just get back to the basics. The very basic thing a schooling system needs to do in any country, developing or developed country, kids must learn to read and write. It's not rocket science. Uh, there, there's so much research, there's so much pedagogy, there's so much thinking around how to teach reading and writing properly. And for us as a relatively well-resourced country, we're not getting this right. When you compare us to these international assessments uh, that, that you, the, the, the listeners might be familiar with, many done by the OECD or international agencies, we come down at the bottom of the pool. And the question is really why, you know, we've got good resources, we, we talk about education, we prioritize education, but yet our kids can't read and write properly at the ages that they're required to. How is your organization working to address these critical issues? And what partnerships have you created to produce collective impact? All right, so if we switch to kind of partnerships for you, I think looking at the solutions, because, I mean, there are many challenges, we can talk about them. It's how do we fix the ecosystem of education? Uh, many NGOs and research agencies and, and even government entities and private entities, you know, they come at this quite piecemeal. So let's help uh, this uh, group of schools in this area and let's focus on, on uh, I don't know, maths and science. And those all things are all great, really great. But the problem we have in our country is we've got a systemic problem. So the parts that we contribute to all well intended and, and often uh, funded with, with important uh, contributions from private sector and, and public, they don't affect the change that we want because we're not looking at the ecosystem as a whole. Let me give you a practical example. So let's look at teacher training and let's see how our teachers are trained. And so looking at a collective impact model, a, a collective process where we all look at how teacher internal uh, initial teacher education can be improved can be a massive systemic change in the country so that's the kind of stuff jet does we look at the right partners private and public and we bring them all together and over a period normally no less than five years normally five to ten years we look at a key problem and we try and put systemic solutions in place that really kind of shift the needle in terms of key problems in the education system I think the example that you're giving um, really, really flies in the face of all of the, the typical go-to um, solutions that one thinks of in terms of improving education. Um, certainly the, the corporate social responsibility type things where we feel like if we're helping with um, putting a lab in a school or putting a library in a school or even increasing the number of educators available to students. Um, but you're quite correct. If you don't address the foundational issue, all of those investments really don't amount to much. Um, what do you think is the blockage in people sort of 
getting to understand that the problem must be addressed at a systemic level and not at, a, at an artificial level. So let me respond uh, to your first point uh, first. So CSI and the work that gets done there is important. Let's not take that away from, from what uh, uh, banks, uh, companies, private sector does and the contribution they make. It's massively important. My point is that we need both and, you know, we need the, the specific partnerships and the labs and whatever else. But we cannot, we cannot expect that on its own to, to shift the needle. We've got to have the systemic collaboration as well. So let's, let's just be clear on that. We definitely need both. The problem for a, for a kind of corporate funder is, well, where do you put your money around this kind of stuff? Because do you build a lab or do you invest into a softer ecosystem collaboration, which might not even give you the visibility uh, as a corporate? You know, it, it might be that you like a very back-end support uh, donor, in a sense, to a collaboration that is abstract, that is long-term, and that you can only expect results in five to seven to eight years. I think that's a challenge to corporates in many cases around the CSI investment. I think Trilog is doing interesting work in the area. So Trilog is, by the way, one of our partners that we work with, Bertha, on initial teacher education. Trilux is a nice example because Trilux got a bird's eye view of CSI. And so while uh, Trilog analyzes CSI contributions and, and reports on that annually, which is great, I think Trilog can be even stronger by encouraging collaborations so that corporate funders can collectively work together around areas that require more funding than perhaps one funder on its own can contribute. And I think this is an interesting space opening up for us a country. It's collective impact models that require systemic agencies like Trilog to, to coordinate together with those funders that fall within their kind of broad portfolio. Just now turning to EdTech, which has expanded dramatically in the past few years with COVID-19 being a significant influence, how do you think it's impacted equitable access to education? And what do you think we need to look out for to improve it? I'm going to say something that might sound a bit controversial, but I think it's uh, distracting us. Yeah, so, so EdTech gives us, of course, solutions to leapfrog and uh, do many things, and we can chat about it now. But our problem in South Africa is because we don't have a mature democracy. We have uh, political leaders that jump to solutions because they, they're sexy. And, and I think I've, I've seen quite a bit of this happening the last couple of years in South Africa, where EdTech, let's, uh, let's buy a whole lot of tablets, uh, give them to kids in schools, let's have a big launch. You know, all that kind of stuff, you know, and within a couple of months, maybe if you're lucky, a year or two, tablets stolen, issues not used properly, internet's a problem, whatever else. So I think EdTech is, is both an opportunity and a distractor. I really want to go back to the point we, we, we spoke about when we started the conversation. South Africa needs to get the basics right in schooling. That is where we need to start. We can do many, many other things in, a, in, our, in our system, in our schooling system, in our TVET system as well, and in our university sector. But we can do none of those if we don't get the basics right. Now, EdTech does offer some solutions in this area. So there are um, applications and examples uh, of, of uh, apps and things that get developed that help kids learn uh, to read and write, if I can go back to that example. So absolutely, I mean, those things are great. And we do, we do kind of um, implement some of those things in the schools with workers yet. There's no problem uh, to use the EdTech and to support the, the, the reading and writing kind of thing, if I use that example. But the problem is it becomes a distraction. And there's a whole lot of stuff that comes around that, around the security of the EdTech, the implementation of the EdTech, and I might add also the deepening inequality. 
So it's generally schools that are already advantaged that, that can use the edtech in our country. This is the reality. So either ex-model C schools or private schools. And they can use the edtech really well. And that advantages their children and good for them. You know, there's no problem with that. But the, the reality is that the majority of our schools are not at that level. So the majority of our schools have limited ability to absorb the benefits of edtech. It's not to say edtech is a bad thing. It's just to say that our system is not geared to absorb it properly. So I would always go back to get the basics right. If a school is functioning well, edtech's great. You know, edtech can, can make you, what's, what's that Jim Collins saying, from good to great? Edtech can take you from good to great, <clears throat> no problem. Can edtech take you from, from dysfunctional to functional? I think it's quite a stretch, and, and I think we need to be very careful in our country how we use edtech. I think you're, you're certainly hitting on a very critical point about our, um, as society, our, our preference for, for slick and technologically advanced options. But if we really look at the core of what the education system needs in South Africa, as you said, it's basics, which can only be enhanced if the basics are there. And I must say, you know, it, it might sound like I'm, I'm, I'm an edtech phobic or something. I'm not. We actually do massive rollouts in, in the digital space with government to try and look at how we can use not edtech per se, but technology more broadly to help us understand the systemic problems in, in the system. Uh, if I talk about technology more broadly, I'm talking about how we can use technology in, in, in a sense that it benefits the system to, to function better. Let me give you a concrete example. I think it might be the easiest. Um, the example uh, or the project that I mentioned to you, it's called the PSET Cloud. So PSET is post-school education and training. And cloud is an acronym we used for, for collaboration and learning opportunities for the utilization of data. What we're trying to do with, with, with that particular initiative is we're working with the, the post-school ecosystem. So we're working with universities, professional bodies, employers, uh, Department of Higher Education and Training, SACWA, the three quality councils, Umulusi, uh, CHE, and the QCPO. And we're working with them collectively to try and see how the data that we have can be more accessible to citizens of our country. So let me make it quite practical. If I'm sitting in, in a township somewhere in Limpopo, I might have some qualifications or I might have some non-formal training or some expertise. I've got very limited line of sight of the opportunities that exist in the country, very limited. You know, unless I've got a network, a family network, or somebody that can help me, I really struggle with, with matching the supply and the demand in our country. What the Peace of Cloud's trying to do, it's trying to connect the dots between these opportunities and, and, and the capacity we have in the country. Let's just turn back to our earlier discussion about the education system and about youth, because we know that they are the largest part of our population here in South Africa, and their lack of um, schooling or completed schooling or employment after completion of schooling is really a critical issue. What are the initiatives that, in your view, are essential to keeping youth in school that can be supported by the private sector? Yeah, sure, that's a big question. I think there's, there's a, this requires a multiple kind of um, interventions. There's not one answer to this. Firstly, I think if we can get our schooling system right at the bottom end, we'll have less overage youth in the system, by the way. You know, so let's, let's start again with the basics because, you know, you've got to, the symptom we have 
is that we've got overage youth uh, in schooling and we've got high dropout. That's a symptom. The problem, of course, lies deeper, and the problem lies with, with kids that are coming through the schooling system, being promoted across grades and things that are not ready, and therefore get stuck in the system. So, you know, I think we must separate system from, from the actual problem. But having said that, we have the problem and we've got to address it. So one of the key things that, that we do work in as JET is it's important to look at a vocational route. Our schooling system is incredibly biased towards an academic route. This is a bit of a legacy, and I don't blame the colonialists for everything or, or the apartheid government while they're guilty of a lot of stuff. But one of the things the, the colonialists did leave us with in our, in our education system is a bias towards academic schooling and academic career. If you take uh, countries, and I'm using Africa now, that, that had French uh, influence, they actually have an interesting trend where the French are very pro-vocational routes. The Germans are the same. So if you go to countries that have strong French or German influence, kids can branch out to vocational routes earlier. And so those kids that are not academically inclined that are probably going to drop out in the academic route, find other ways, you know, to be fulfilled and contribute to society and enjoy their work and their lives. I think the opportunity for us to really look at at um, matching uh, employment with uh, employment demands with what we're getting out of schools and out of universities are also important. There are jobs that are that when when kids uh, are in the schooling system, many of the jobs that that they could potentially do don't even exist yet. You know, when when they when they're going through the schooling system, so many of the jobs that are more futuristic and are changing. As a country, we're not always ready to absorb those youth to take on those new jobs. So the issue is we've got a very slow response, a very um, reactive approach to these new jobs instead of a proactive approach. Many of our dropouts and our kids that would land without jobs sitting at home could easily have been absorbed into these new jobs because the jobs are there, they're growing, and the kids are sitting at home, and there's no, there's no link between these two things. Maybe coming at it from a CSI angle, maybe just the last example. I think there's a really nice things that CSI uh, and, and others have done for many years, and it's like a very simple thing like bursaries. Do not underestimate the value of a traditional bursary scheme. You know, it, it, it might not get the massive numbers, but it makes a change. You know, it, it gives an opportunity to a young person that would never have had it. And it takes them through this journey in a more supported way. And they become the champions for, for, for their friends and their peers around them. When you speak about um, youth currently in the education system and coming out, and there are jobs that they could do that, as of today, don't exist. What role do you think the private sector can play in more proactively helping to transition youth from education and training to the world of work at scale? I think, I mean, the example that comes to mind would be innovation hubs, this kind of place, you know, where, where the private sector puts together a, a environment where through proper recruitment and sifting and all those kind of things, you can bring young people on board in a in a shorter term, six months, year, whatever, and you know you can just give them that massive workplace experience while they get some on the job training while they actually work. Now, the private sector is pretty good with this, you know, and and I, and I think that's a that's a, that's also a, a quick win and something the private sector must not stop doing. Um, other things I think more broadly would be collaborating again, uh, but with government around these things. Because it's one thing for a, for a private company to, to put an innovation hub in place and 
and work with 30 or 50 kids to help them code or whatever else. But the problem is many of those companies will not be able to absorb uh, all of those kids into their actual jobs, you know. So they might have 30 or 50 in the, in the early stage and end up with five that actually get jobs in the company. So there's no visibility of the work they do across the, the ecosystem. Then those 45 or 40 kids that do not meet the grade at the end of the period just drop back. So again, it's about coordinating uh, across our ecosystem so that we can we can know where there's oversupply and where there's undersupply. Now, I want to just come to the question about systems failure and collectively, private sector, public sector, communities, nonprofits. How do we address collectively these failures? And what do you think are the leverage points um, that, that are opportunities waiting to be, waiting to be considered? Look, I think that my primary response to your question was, would be that we need a functional government. You can do everything you want. You know, you can do fantastic collaborations, collective impact. You can, you can have ed tech. You can do whatever. But if government is not functional, you know, you're always chasing your tail because the, the absorption, the return on investment remains low. But for me, that is the first place I start. And so as a collective, how do we look at, um, building government capacity and leadership and technical capacity. I think that's a massive space that many of our international donors and so on do, do operate in. But very few of our local corporates actually operate in that space. Uh, our local corporates will function more in niche areas that are aligned to their business. And I'm not criticizing them for that. That's, that makes sense. Where the international donors would function more broadly on ecosystem things like government capacity. Thank you so much for joining us today, James. Thank you, Tomini. What struck you about this conversation? For me, it's recognizing that it is really in all of our best interests that the public education system improves, whether you're personally connected to it or not. A better public education system will ultimately benefit all of us and the generations to come. There are many ways for private companies to play a role in this space. What has this conversation sparked for you? And is there something you would like to take further? Thank you for listening to this episode on public education. We trust you found it helpful. You'll find other useful information on the topic as part of the Investec pre-learning resources. Talk soon.